Good morning, EWG. I trust this finds you well. Uh, who knew that we'd be beginning 2021 still in this strange format, but here we are. Uh, we trust in the law's purposes, and uh, I do hope that you're looking forward to and excited at the prospect of another year of ministry, uh, of studying God's Word together, continuing on in the book of Acts. And to my knowledge, I think you're up to about chapter 9 now. So Lauren had asked me to start the year off uh, with something of an overview of the book, uh, much the same way that I did last year, I think back in September, and I'm happy to do that. It's my privilege uh, to do that for you. There will be some repetition today uh, with things that I'd said before, really just trying to paint that bigger picture again, reminding us of what Luke is doing here, why he wrote this book, what the purpose of the book is, what the salient themes are and the teaching points and how it should affect our lives as believers. So let's begin, and if you have your Bible handy, turn to Acts chapter 1. Before we look at the text, uh, something I gave you last time as a, a helpful kind of catch line to remember and to think through what this book is about is God's promise program realized for the nations. That's not my own. Uh, a number have hinted at that being the main idea in the book of Acts, and I like it. I find it to be very helpful. God's promise program realized for the nations. What Luke is doing in this book is showing us that all that God had had given in the Old Testament as his plan is now coming to fruition, in a sense, through the life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is important to remember that this is the second part in a, in a two-part story. Uh, Acts is anchored to the narrative of, of Luke. And in fact, many have even observed that the shape of this two-part story is significant. The literary shake, shape of Luke-Acts is one that starts with a very broad, wide-angle lens internationally. Think back to the first few chapters of Luke, and you'll remember there's that census where we're told the whole world is coming to be accounted for. So there's this wide-angle lens, and then as the narrative of Luke progressive, progresses, it narrows down to just one point at the very end, that being the cross of the Lord Jesus. And then we begin in Acts, picking up from there, and as we trace the narrative through, the lens gets wider and wider again uh, as the gospel goes forth to the ends of the earth. So the, the, the literary shape of Luke-Acts is one that starts wide, it funnels down to this one singular point, namely the cross of Jesus Christ, and then it opens up again into the book of Acts. I find that just a helpful way to think about what is going on if we read through this very long narrative. Now, specifically as we come to the text, let's think through how this gospel is going to go forth. And we see, importantly, in the very first chapter that Luke makes reference to the first book. In the first book, O Theophilus, he's referring back to the gospel that he wrote, and there's actually a technical name for what he's doing here. We call it a resumptive prologue. Uh, the reason that's important is because we don't see any stated aim here in Acts chapter 1. He's resuming in his prologue of Acts, he's resuming uh, where he left off with the first volume. He doesn't feel the need to state the aim again. The inference when you come across a resumptive prologue is that the aim remains the same. Now, that's important if we turn back just very briefly to the beginning of the Gospel of Luke to take note and to remind ourselves of what the aim was there. We see that Luke wrote this Gospel to Theophilus 
why that you may have certainty concerning the things you've been taught, verse 4 of chapter 1 in Luke's gospel. That's the purpose for this gospel. It's also the inferred purpose in the book of Acts. Now, just think about that. As you read through the book of Acts, this is a book given to you so that you might have certainty concerning the things you've been taught. The nature of the book of Acts is that it is to give in the believer confidence uh, to shore up your faith in the things of the gospel. So this should be a very encouraging book for you. We might go on and, and look at that second half of verse 1 in Acts chapter 1 and see that Luke says, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Now that's very interesting. He says, in my gospel, I dealt with all the things Jesus began to do and teach. And yet in the gospel, we see the, the complete life, death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And Acts chapter 1, we see him ascend. So you might think, well, well, what more is there to tell? You've told us the story, Luke. But he is there, I believe, giving us just a hint of what he's doing in this narrative in the book of Acts. And that is he's presenting all that Jesus continues to do and teach. In Luke's mind, Jesus's work is not done. In a sense, he's, he's carrying on, not bodily, he's ascended, but through the apostles, and this is actually a key feature in the narrative. As you read through the book of Acts, you'll see that the apostles are there on the ground doing the work of the ministry and advancing the gospel. But hopefully what you'll see with a close reading of the narrative is that oftentimes the things the apostles do echo very strongly things that the Lord Jesus has already done in Luke's gospel. And that's not an accident. It's very intentional Luke portrays these apostles in the likeness of Christ. The point being that Jesus is working through them. He is carrying on his work on earth through these apostles. That's why I actually like to think of the book of Acts as titled the Acts of the Risen Lord Jesus. I said before that the titles of the books are not inspired. They've come to us by way of church history and people finish the Acts in different ways. The Acts of the Apostles being the most common title. The Acts of the Holy Spirit is one that sometimes the book is labeled. I like the Acts of the Risen Lord Jesus. Just to press the point home, he's still working through his disciples. And a lot of what they do echoes back to the account we have of Jesus in the gospel. Now, we might even make a point of application there. Just think about that with me. We're not apostles. We don't have the commission they had, and we don't have the authority they have to do the things they do. But there does come a point in the Acts narrative where the, the apostles hand over, as it were, the responsibility for the gospel to the believers in the church. And I'm thinking specifically in Acts chapter 20, when Paul entrusts the Ephesian elders with the responsibility of this gospel. There is this progression from Jesus to the apostles and then eventually to the church. And if we are to draw a line of application, I would say that we are to live Christ-like lives also. The things that we see happening to Christ, we should not be surprised when they happen to us. And, and there I'm referring to a major theme in the book of Acts, namely the theme of suffering. It should come as no surprise that the testimony of the church throughout its history is that of suffering, and that's exactly because we are to live Christ-like lives. 
as we saw our Lord Jesus suffer, so that should be what we expect uh, as we live out our faithful Christian lives. Now, let's move forward beyond the prologue and think through this first chapter, the first two chapters, in fact. And I refer to the chapters one and two of Acts as the handover. It's the great handover as, as the Lord Jesus hands over the responsibility for the ministry to his apostles. The things to be looking for in these two chapters are lines of continuity and discontinuity, not only between the apostles and Jesus, but between uh, these two chapters and all that has happened in the Old Testament. Sometimes things carry on as they were, and there's good reason for that. And sometimes there are huge disjunctures uh, in these two chapters that are, again, significant. So let me just point out a few. First of all, Jesus is uh, 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 intent on giving the, miss, the mission in verse 8 when he says, you'll receive the, 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 the power, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria and to the end of the earth. And uh, I often make a big, a big deal of that one verse and, uh, and, and I mentioned it when I taught before. This is the programmatic statement for the whole book. Luke arranges the whole narrative around these three areas. The gospel goes forth in Jerusalem in chapters 3 through 7. It goes out to Judea and Samaria in 8 through 12, and then to the ends of the earth in 13 through to the end of the book. So this is the the way in which this narrative is going to advance. Notice the word witnesses. Uh, That's a technical term in the book of Acts that refers to anyone that has seen with their own eyes the risen Lord Jesus. So to be a witness in the book of Acts is to have incredible authority. You proclaim the Lord Jesus whom you have seen risen bodily from the dead. And notice that those three terms imply not just geographical progression, but also an upending of society, as it were. And the reason I say that is because they're not all co-equal. They're not merely geographical locations. Jerusalem's a city, Judea and Samaria is a region, and the end of the earth is actually a term taken from Isaiah that refers to Gentiles. So it's not just that Luke is saying the gospel is going to move forward or Jesus giving that mission, but he's, going to say, he's saying it's going to move forward and engage with all strands of society. And when it engages, it's going to turn them on their head. The gospel will turn the world upside down, as we know indeed it does. After that, he ascends, and the the burden is to replace Judas, to appoint another apostle. Now, why is that? Here's one of the lines of continuity. In the Old Testament, we had 12 tribes of Israel, and it was through those 12 tribes that the Lord was working. We move to the New Testament, and God is now going to be working through the church. In order to affirm a continuation of his plan, as Luke is so eager to show us, it's important to simply have 12 apostles. Uh, we, we might argue, why couldn't the work just be done with 11? But it's affirming this line of continuity to show that God is still at work. And more than that, he's at work in the way in which he was at work in the Old Testament. So the 12 tribes of Israel then transferred to 12 disciples in the book of Acts. Then moving into chapter two, we see the Holy Spirit coming down at the day of Pentecost. This would be a line of discontinuity. Now, what do I mean by that? The ministry of the the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament is one that dwelt in just a few of God's people. God was dealing with the nation of Israel. 
There's a select few who were truly regenerate and had saving faith in the Lord. And they, I do believe, had the Holy Spirit indwelling in them. But there's a large portion of the nation of Israel that didn't honor the Lord. And so the Holy Spirit was not pleased to dwell in them. We move to the book of Acts and there's a discontinuity as now the the people of God in this book, the church, all of them have the Holy Spirit. All of them, the true church, have saving faith in God. And so now the Holy Spirit is indwelling in every single member. And so there's a, a transition as we move into this new phase of redemptive history. Notice also how the book of, uh, sorry, the day of Pentecost uh, is, a, is a microcosm of what's going to happen in the book of Acts. Uh, Luke uh, goes to great length in verse 9 and 10 to label all of these people that came. He's trying to picture the nations, as it were, in miniature format. And so all of these different people come round, and the Holy Spirit is shed abroad. And we see the, the unity of the gospel brings as in, in a very small way, but in a very symbolic and important way, the gospel is going out to the nations. And it's, it's right that many have connected this back to the Tower of Babel incident when, when the nations were dispersed and confused by different languages and Pentecost is the reverse of that. So there's, there's a lot of hope in these first two chapters as we see the gospel doing exactly what Jesus said it would do. We then come to the first major speech in the book of Acts. Um, you're going to see that there are many speeches in the book of Acts, on average one every other chapter, and that's because it's by the Lord's word that he does his work, and the apostles are his representatives now that Jesus has ascended. So they speak a lot, and it's through their words that the work is accomplished. You can boil down the speeches in Acts to four main ideas. I don't want to be overly simplistic, and I want to encourage you to engage with all of the wonderful, rich details, but you can just... Uh, have in your mind that the speeches revolve around four main ideas. The first being simply a testimony of the life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. The apostles tell people about Christ. Secondly, the offer of the Holy Spirit and the forgiveness of sins. And then thirdly, uh, uh, the, the, the requirement for repentance of sins. And lastly, the requirement for faith in Christ. So they, they preach the Lord Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection. They offer holy, the Holy Spirit and the forgiveness of sins. They require repentance from those sins and faith in Christ. And you'll see that as a common feature throughout the book of Acts when the apostles open their mouths to speak. Now, as we come to the end of this handover, this introduction to the book, note carefully the last few verses of chapter 2. This then focuses on the believers, and we're told that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And again, without being overly simplistic, that's a helpful way to think through what the believers were doing in the book of Acts. It's not that we should always be seeking to imitate the apostles per se, because they had a very specific job description. The apostolic age is ended. But we're on fairly safe ground when we look at what the believers were doing and we understand that they become an example for us. Over and over and over again in the book of Acts, Luke draws attention to this community and he says, guess what they were doing? They were submitting themselves to the teaching of God's word, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. That's a simple blueprint for how we should be living our Christian lives. 
And in a very encouraging way, that simple life is the means by which the gospel progresses. Nothing fancy, nothing crazy, just the simple life lived in obedience to those principles is the way in which the gospel advances. Okay, so that's the end of the handover, and it's when we get to chapter 3 that we really start to see the progression of the gospel, 3 through 7 being the first uh, major section that Jesus spoke about, the gospel being proclaimed in Jerusalem. A few things to draw attention to here. Chapter 3 through to the end of 5 is actually a very large chiasm. Uh, if you don't know what a chiasm is, it's a, it's a literary sandwich. Uh, so think about ABA, uh, the first section of, of the, of the um, text is labeled A, the next section is B, and then it returns to A, mirroring that first section in, in content. That's what we call a chiasm. And they can be longer than that. They could be A, B, C, B, A. And it's often that central portion that is the one being emphasized. Well, more than a few scholars have noted that chapters 3 through 5 in the book of Acts forms a large literary chiasm around certain themes. So 3.1 through 4.22, we see a healing, we see a speech from one of the apostles, and then we see opposition. In the center, 4.23 through 5.11, we see the believers, and guess what they're doing? They're praying. That's the positive example. And then we get a negative example with Ananias and Sapphira who aren't telling the truth. And then we return to the first idea in the chiasm. We get a healing, speech, and opposition in 5.12 through 5.42. So that's the idea as we progress through these chapters. Now, what, what is going on? What is Luke communicating? As we see the apostles making their speech and performing a healing and an opposition from the temple authorities, what we see is Luke impressing on us that the principles in Acts chapter 1 and 2 are now being fleshed out. They're being worked out in, in reality, in everyday life. Uh, to put it plainly, the temple system that was so corrupt is being shifted to one side and the church is taking primacy of place. God is making very clear in this narrative that it's through the church that he's now going to do his work because the temple wasn't functioning in the way that he had intended it to do. Uh, a few notes on that. How is it that the church and the apostles' ministry is so effective? Well, one thing we can note in chapter 3 is the reference, the continual references to the name. So look with me at chapter 3 and verse 6. Uh, Peter says, it's in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Again, in 3.16, he says, and his name, by faith in his name, he has made this man strong. In chapter 4, verse 7, they even ask him, by what power or by what name did you do this? And he replies in verse 10 of chapter 4, uh, let it be known that it is by the name of Jesus Christ that God raised from the dead, that this man is standing well. And then again, the, the familiar verse in 4.12, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So you just see through the repetition of that idea of the name that the reason the apostles' ministry is effective here is because they're doing it in the name of the Lord Jesus. And you understand that 
They don't mean simply hear the the written word, Jesus. The Old Testament idea of invoking someone's name is to invoke their whole being, their whole life, all that they are. I like to ask people uh, occasionally, what does it mean when we pray in Jesus's name? In Jesus' name, amen. What does that mean? We're offering our prayers to God through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. We're invoking all that Jesus is. And we understand that we can't approach God apart from that name. We can't offer our prayers apart from invoking his name. So when we say in Jesus' name, it's more of a reminder to us, or at least it should be a reminder to us, that we're offering this prayer through and only through the life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. The apostles' ministry is done like that. They're saying all that you see us doing, uh, this man being healed, the, the power, the authority, all of it is done in the name of the Lord Jesus. It's not us, but it's him that's doing these things. So that's part of the answer as to how it is that the, the temple system is being moved to one side and the church is taking center stage. But then you remember I said we've got this huge literary chiasm. On the outside is the apostles' uh, healing, speech, and opposition the centerpiece of the chiasm is actually the church. From 423 to 511, the believers are at the center of this chiastic structure. And more than that, we might say the believers praying. It's the believers praying that is Luke is drawing attention to. And he's suggesting to us it's, it's them that are doing the work. The believers simply going about the, work, the ministry of prayer. Uh, we read that they spoke boldly, and I do believe that includes, and, and it might even mean exclusively, spoke boldly to one another. They're just ministering to one another the truth of the gospel. The negative example that complements that is that of Ananias and Sapphira, a story you know well. The exhortation there is simply to live a life of integrity, to live a life of integrity and honesty. And so the centerpiece of the chiasm is the believers praying with an exhortation to do so, do likewise, and to live with integrity and honesty. And we can be encouraged. It's through those simple acts of obedience that the gospel does its work. That's how the gospel went forth in Jerusalem. Now, just skipping ahead to the end of this section, we come across Stephen. And Stephen's ministry, very, very brief in Scripture, uh, is an inflection point in the book of Acts. Why do I say that? First of all, uh, he's the first Christian martyr recorded. Uh, he testifies boldly to the Lord Jesus. He accuses the Jews of rejection and uh, hard-heartedness, and they don't like it, and they stone him to death. Not only that, but as he's killed, that prompts a persecution of the Christians, which is the very means that God uses to spread the gospel beyond the boundaries of Jerusalem. So it's when Stephen dies and a great persecution arises that the believers scatter and that's the very way in which God uses or the very way in which God gets the gospel beyond Jerusalem into the next region. And then thirdly, it's through the, the stoning of Stephen that we're introduced for the first time to Saul, who you know will go on to become Paul. If you have time to read over again the stoning of Stephen, this is one of those episodes that I was mentioning earlier that echoes back to things that have happened to Jesus in Luke's gospel. It's not an accident that Stephen is presented in a Christ-like manner in his death. It's been said of Stephen, his is the most Christ-like death in all of Scripture. 
If we pause there then at the end of this first section, uh, the gospel going out in Jerusalem, we can make some application and simply see that Luke is encouraging us through his narrative in Acts to live a life of, of boldness, certainly, of proclamation of the gospel, a consistent witness to Christ, a life of prayer, uh, never underestimating what the Lord will do through our faithful prayers, and then an anticipation of suffering. Uh, the Bible never promises that by following Christ we'll have a comfortable life, but rather just the opposite. From there then, 8 through to 12, we see the gospel going into Judea and Samaria. This is the next section of the book. You have to remember as we walk into 8 through 12, we're now dealing with folks that weren't well liked by the Jerusalem Jews. These are the Samaritans. Uh, these are the descendants of the rebellion that happened all the way back in the book of Kings and split the kingdom. Uh, think about some well-known episodes in the Gospels that just highlight this point. When Jesus comes to the woman at the well in John 4, she herself uh, expresses astonishment. Uh, you would speak to me, you a Jew would speak to me a Samaritan. She's just amazed that this interaction would even happen because of the disunity and the dislike from the Jews in Jerusalem towards the Samaritans. Think about the parable of the Good Samaritan. Uh, the, the sting there is that Jesus says, okay, a, a, a priest passed by and did nothing. A Levite passed by and did nothing. And the person that actually helped was a Samaritan of all people. Not just that the priest and the Levite did nothing, but that the Samaritan would be the person to help. So you get the picture. This is a, an area that if the, if the Jews were to uh, embrace the gospel, may, maybe they would accept that God would, would include some others in that, in that number, but, but not the Samaritans. Surely the gospel couldn't go to Samaria. And yet that's exactly what we see happening. In chapter 8, we get uh, immediately two responses to this gospel. The first is of Simon the magician. Um, we see as we, we go beyond Jerusalem some new issues that come about in the reception of the gospel. And, and very clearly with Simon, the problem is that he can't quite let go of his previous way of thinking. He has a worldview that is steeped in the occult, in magic, and he on some level believes the testimony that the apostles bring. And yet when he offers money for this trick that he, he perceives, he he's showing himself to be wanting to live out a syncretistic faith of, of holding on to the gospel in some sense and yet holding on to his previous way of life. And, uh, and he receives a sharp rebuke for not being willing to turn away from all that he was and embrace the gospel fully. Within the episode of Simon the Magician, it is important to note the apostles come down from Jerusalem and we do come across what I refer to as a mini Pentecost event. Uh, I'm looking here at chapter 8 and verse 15. Peter and John came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. They laid their hands on them, received the Spirit. It reads a little bit like Acts chapter 2, and that's not an accident. This is a, a kind of mini Pentecost, a Pentecost take two. Now, let's just think carefully about why this would be. And I'm, I'm stopping here because this passage has given rise to some doctrinal errors in the church throughout uh, its history. People use this passage to draw 
an imperative for Christians today and say you need to receive a second blessing or a higher blessing or you haven't yet received the Spirit even though you've believed. And, and we understand that's wrong. That's an incorrect inference. Uh, we understand that because the epistles teach us that on the moment of saving faith, of belief in Christ, you receive the Holy Spirit uh, and, and, and that's, that's something promised by the Lord. This is a unique time in church history. We're transitioning and, and unique things are happening that don't then get carried on as a, as a way of repetition in, in the church. Remember, we're in Samaria. We're not in Jerusalem anymore. We're in the area that if it was heard by the Jerusalem uh, Jews or, or, or those that had accepted the gospel, oh, the Samaritans have believed as well, the temptation would be to say, no, no, they haven't. There are enemies. We don't like them. There's no way that they're also included. And so God, in his wisdom, delays the coming of the Holy Spirit. They've believed seemingly in a, in a saving way, and then the apostles arrive, and it's with the apostles' arrival, they're the authority figures in the book of Acts, that there's this visible manifestation of their faith, namely the reception of the Holy Spirit, so that all can see these guys are included too. It's testimony to the fact that the gospel is going out to the ends of the earth. From there, we think about the Ethiopian eunuch, another well-known story. And this, this story forms the flip side to the coin of Simon the magician. Simon the magician wasn't willing to let go of his old ways. And he tried to have a hand on both and was rebuked for it. By contrast, the Ethiopian turns fully to the gospel and embraces it as a new way of living. Um, notice here just how wonderfully Luke presents the narrative. He introduces to us the Ethiopian in uh, verse 27, and he gives him a very, very long description. He says there was this Ethiopian who was a eunuch, and he was a court official of Candace, who was the queen of the Ethiopians, and he was in charge of all her treasure. It's a really long introduction. It's intentional because what he does after that is he strips away all of the descriptors, and focuses, focuses singularly on the fact that he's a eunuch. Verse 34, the eunuch said to Philip. Uh, verse 36, the eunuch said. Verse 38, the eunuch. Verse 39, the eunuch. You see how after giving him that really long description, he then narrows down and focuses only on the fact that this man was a eunuch. So he seems to be emphasizing something. What could the point be? The Mosaic law taught that eunuchs were not allowed to enter into the temple. If a eunuch was to worship at the temple, he couldn't enter in. He had a second-class worship experience. This text tells us that the eunuch had just come from Jerusalem. He'd been to worship, so we know the kind of experience he'd had at the temple. And then, in the Lord's providence, here he is with Isaiah 53. Now, just turn back there very briefly with me. It's worth looking at the text itself. We're told in Acts chapter 8 that he's reading Isaiah 53 and um, that, that they, 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 they sit together, the eunuch and Philip, and Philip, beginning, beginning with Isaiah 53, explains the gospel, explains about the Lord Jesus. So here we are, and, and let's see if we can't think through what they would have read together. They're reading about the servant in Isaiah 53, the one that, that died for the sins of others and makes a payment for sin. What happens after that is that we read in Isaiah 54, sing, O barren one. Uh, Isaiah addressing now the, the people of Israel, sing, 
O barren one? Why? Because the servants died and you get to benefit from his work. We go on to Isaiah 54. Come everyone who thirsts. Uh, This universal plea. Come to the waters. He has money. Come by eat. Again, why is it that Isaiah can make such a rich offer because of the work of the servant? It all follows on Isaiah 53. Then we get to Isaiah 56 and we see these wonderful promises given by the Lord, amongst which he says, verse 4, Thus says the Lord to the eunuchs, To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me, hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. So you see within the context Acts chapter 8, the eunuch is a worshiper of the Lord. He just went to the temple, but the Mosaic law says you can't enter because you're a eunuch. And Luke stresses the, the, the fact that he's a eunuch. And then he's reading Isaiah 53 with Philip. And Philip says, let me just begin here and let me take you on a journey through scripture. And we can only assume that they got to Isaiah 56 and the eunuch was just overjoyed with the promises that the gospel holds forth for eunuchs. And so he embraces this new worldview emphatically. And thus we have the beginning of the ministry in Judea and Samaria. In chapter 9, which I believe is where you've got to, we see the conversion of Saul. There's much we could say about this. Do note that it's a very what I call Isaianic conversion. It's a conversion that's steeped in themes and motifs taken from the book of Isaiah. One of them being the idea of light and darkness. Isaiah draws very much on the concept of darkness and and light indicating or representing salvation. It's no accident that Saul on the road to Damascus was blinded. And then a few days later, his eyes were opened. He is living out. He's a living example of Isaianic salvation. And then again, no accident. The Lord says, go for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Allusions there back to the servant songs of Isaiah. This man, perhaps more than any other in the book of Acts, is going to carry on not merely the ministry of the Lord Jesus as we see it in the gospel, but the ministry of the Lord Jesus as we understand the Lord Jesus to be the servant of Isaiah, the suffering servant. Paul is going to walk that path. The Lord says so at his conversion. This one is going to take my gospel forth and he's going to do it in the likeness of the suffering servant. So we shouldn't be surprised to see not only a, a multitude of Isaiahic references in the second portion of the book of Acts, but also an awful lot of suffering in Paul's ministry. Moving a little bit more quickly now through this second section, what do we see? The abrogation of food laws, uh, a very clear turning away from the Mosaic system um, and an embracing of a, a new way of life under the new covenant. We actually get a third Pentecost experience. I wonder if you've noticed that in chapter 10, verse, uh, verse 44, while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. They were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Again, it sounds very much like Acts chapter 2, and it's not an accident. This is now the third 
Pentecost-like experience in the book of Acts for the same reason that we saw the Holy Spirit being delayed in Samaria, just so that there could be a visible manifestation of their saving faith by way of the Holy Spirit coming to them, so also now with the Gentiles. So it just validates their belief and validates their membership to the church. And it's from there that we get, unsurprisingly, another persecution as James is killed and Peter is imprisoned. And with that, the gospel going forth yet again. And now it goes to, uh, metaphorically, you might say, the ends of the earth, chapters 13 and following. Now, this is a very large portion of the book. I tend to divide it into two halves in my head, 13 through 20 and then 21 through to 28. Speaking first about 13 through 20, this is the section that contains what we refer to as Paul's missionary journeys. There are three of them, the first being 13 and 14 in Asia Minor, the second being 16 through to the uh, first half of chapter 18, that's his journey to Asia Minor and Greece, and then the second half of 18 through to 20 is what we typically label as Paul's third missionary journey to Asia Minor and Greece, then to, off to Jerusalem. Um, a few things to say about these missionary journeys. First of all, uh, it does, Paul does uh, face a lot of opposition on the way. It's helpful to think through the, the specifics of the opposition, and you can generally categorize his opposition into two categories. Either he faces opposition from the Jews, or he faces opposition from the occult, uh, from uh, a, a secular but a very kind of dark uh, resistance um, to the gospel. Um, as you work through these, this portion of Acts, it's a very, very helpful exercise to be turning back and forth to the epistles. It's in this portion of the book that Paul is writing letters to churches. And so you can often inform your reading of the, the narrative in Acts with your reading of a particular epistle. And the two go hand in hand. He makes comment on what happened to me when I was here or here. And you, you see it in the narrative of Acts and you see him uh, give comment on it in the epistles. So I would encourage you in this portion especially to be very much in the letters of Paul. Thirdly, uh, I don't know about you, but I, I do find this portion to be very lengthy and uh, my, my goal is always to try and develop something of a roadmap, at least in my mind, uh, concerning the flow of, of any book in the Bible. And Acts is just such a long narrative and, and it can be overwhelming. One very helpful way to think through Acts 13 through 20 is according to three speeches that Paul makes. Three key speeches in this section of the book that are representative of his ministry. So in chapter 13, Paul makes a speech to predominantly Jewish, uh, to, to, to the Jews at Antioch. In chapter 17, he makes a speech predominantly to Gentiles at the Areopagus. And in chapter 20, he makes a speech to the Ephesian elders. So 13 to the Jews, 17 to the Gentiles, 20 to the, the elders at the church. And that is representative of the progression of his ministry. Think about what we know to be true of Paul. Anytime he got to a new town, he preached the gospel to the Jews first and then to the Gentiles. And often, though not always, a church was established. And his three speeches in 13 through 20 reflect that progression. A speech to the Jews, a speech to the Gentiles, and then to the Ephesian elders. 
And if you think about those three speeches as, as hooks that the rest of the narrative hangs off, it's, it's normally true that things going on around those speeches relate to the things he's saying in those speeches or he's relating to the, the people to whom he's addressing in each one of those speeches. That's just a helpful way that I think through this portion of Acts in my mind. Uh, it's worth noting, and, and I should make comment on the Jerusalem Council in chapter 15. Uh, some commentators label this as the centerpiece in the book of Acts, uh, theologically, thematically. I probably wouldn't put that much stress on it, but I do think it's a very, very important episode. Uh, the Jerusalem Council, there's this debate as to whether these new believers should ad- adopt a Jewish lifestyle. And James wades in and says, no. They do not need to do that. Uh, Leave them be. That's the authoritative decision. But notice he does say in verse 19, Therefore my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. Verse 20, But should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, and from what has been strangled, and from blood. Uh, This causes some confusion because... The decision is very clear. The decision is these new believers, the Gentile believers, don't need to become Jewish in order to practice the Christian faith. They don't need to adopt a Jewish way of life. And then yet at the very end of James's speech, he does just throw in, however, they shouldn't do these things. And he lists the, the very things that we could turn to in the Mosaic law and find, oh, they're forbidden back in the, in the law. So, so what's he doing? Is there, is there a contradiction here? How do we understand these? There's lots of different views about this. And the one that I think is, is correct and I find to be most compelling is that these practices were the practices that were most associated with pagan temple practices. If you went to the pagan temple in these days, These are the kind of things that you would do. And so what James is saying is these new Gentile believers, they don't have to become Jews, but they do need to become Christians, if I can put it like that. They don't need to adopt a Jewish way of life, but they must let go of their pagan practices. And there is just an exhortation and a reminder to us, uh, similar to Simon the magician who tried to hold on to two things the call of the gospel is to embrace the gospel fully and not to hold on to other things. From there, then, just a few comments on Acts 21 and following uh, a very long narrative concerning Paul's journey to Jerusalem. I preached on this, uh, the last two chapters a while back. Uh, In part, I really wanted to get into this portion of Acts to just come to terms with it for myself to try and understand why did Luke include this in the narrative? Uh, he's handed over responsibility to the Ephesian elders. The church are going to pick up that responsibility and run with it, and the gospel will flourish through local church ministries. Now, why these long chapters? Many, many trials. Paul is standing trial over and over again, and then that lengthy shipwreck narrative, uh, and the gospel, the book finishes with him under house arrest. The answer, at least in part, is that one of the themes you see in 21 through 28 is is Paul's innocence is being questioned. Paul is being accused, 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 and he never gets a a verdict in his favor. He doesn't get a verdict either way. Uh, The question that is being posed is, is this man guilty? And you have to understand, it's not 
about Paul alone, but Paul and his ministry. If he's guilty, then his ministry is a sham. If he's guilty, then forget the message that he preached. And so the question keeps getting asked, is this man guilty? And it gets transferred from one court, from one judge to another. And then we have that long shipwreck narrative. And in Paul's day, to go to sea was a, was a very, very dangerous thing, especially at the time of year he went to sea. In fact, there was a common belief that if you went to sea and you were guilty, then harm would come upon you. And that would be the verdict of the gods that you were guilty. Uh, if anyone was with you, even if they weren't guilty, the harm would come upon them as well. And, and that would further testify to your guilt. And Jonah is a good example of that. He is guilty from running from God. And there he is on the ship and, 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 and uh, the storm comes and the sailors say, you know, who, who did this? It's, it's your fault. And he says, throw me overboard. Uh, I am guilty. It's a similar thing going on with Paul. But you'll notice when you read Acts 27, uh, the emphasis that Luke places on the narrative is that all were delivered safely to shore. No one was hurt or were delivered safely to shore. And with that comes the validation of Paul the man and his message. This man is innocent and the gospel is intact, as it were. The book of Acts ends not with an anticlimax, but exactly as we might expect it to end with the gospel going forth. Paul is, yes, under house arrest, but it's a very particular kind of house arrest. He is free to preach the gospel. Uh, he's free to do the very thing that got him in trouble in the first place. And we see the gospel going out again to the Gentiles. It is an abrupt ending. Many have noted that. Uh, and one of the devices that we see in literary works is abrupt endings uh, posing a question for the reader. Acts ends abruptly, I do believe, in part to, to turn the camera, as it were, to us and question how we'll respond in light of this message. Remember, Luke's giving us this gospel to encourage us, uh, to, to make us certain of the things we have been taught. And that's an incredible blessing, but it comes with responsibility. The responsibility that Acts confronts us with is whether we will live our lives in a faithful manner so that the gospel would go through, forth through us. What does that mean? It means devoting ourselves to fellowship, to communion, uh, to, to the teaching of God's word and to prayer. And I trust that you'd be encouraged and reminded this year that all God is calling you to do is live out a very simple Christian life, trusting that he will do his work through you such that the gospel will continue to go forth to the ends of the earth. Let me pray now to close and uh, I hope that you have a, a wonderful semester in this great book of Acts. Father, we give you thanks for our short time together today and just something of an overview of this book. There's so much uh, to study and um, for, for, to be edified with. We, we do give you thanks for your word. Thank you for how we see the gospel went forth from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. And in a very real way, we are the beneficiaries of that. We are here today. Uh, salvation in Christ is ours because of this narrative. Uh, we praise you. We give you thanks. And we do ask that you'd help us, strengthen us by your grace to live out a faithful Christian life. Uh, very, very simple. Giving ourselves to fellowship and communion, to prayer and to uh, the teaching of the word knowing that that's the way that you've ordained for your gospel to go forth. I do pray that you would 
work in our hearts so that that would be a characteristic feature of all of our lives uh, this year and for the years ahead. And we would praise you as a result in Jesus' name. Amen.